Did you know The Sleepy Bookshelf has a sibling podcast with all original stories and meditations? It's called Get Sleepy, and I'm sure you'll love it. I even narrate some of the stories. Just search for Get Sleepy in your preferred podcast player. Thank you, and sweet dreams. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Notice how your body feels and focus on any area that seems to be holding any tension. Consciously give it permission to relax. Roll your shoulders forwards three times. And now back three times. And let your head fall heavy into your pillow. Take the deepest breath you've taken all day. And audibly sigh out your exhale. Breathe away all your negative thoughts. Last time... The girls were still at Laurie's party in Longmeadow. Meg was talking to Kate, who mistook the marches for a much wealthier family, and Meg felt embarrassed about being a governess. Mr. Brooke defended her as an independent young American woman. On the road back to the Lawrence house, Ned Moffat failed to attempt to serenade Meg was hurt by her subtle rejection, but all the merry lot parted in good spirits. Days later, while Laurie was lounging, bored on his hammock, he saw the March girls heading out of their garden towards the woods, dressed in large, brown hats, each carrying something personal to them. Intrigued, He followed them and eventually caught up to them seated in the shade, Meg with her sewing, Beth collecting cones, Amy sketching, and Joe knitting while reading aloud. A noisy squirrel gave away his position and Beth beckoned to him. They reluctantly admitted that they were playing pilgrims, and had tried to complete the work they had set themselves for the summer. He agreed to help them work if they allowed him to join them. They talked of their dreams, Laurie to be free to become a famous musician and do as he pleased, Joe to be a renowned author, Meg to be rich, Amy to be an accomplished painter, and Beth, to be content at home forever. They agreed to meet in ten years to see how far they had come. 
Tonight, we meet the girls on the cusp of autumn, and Joe has a secret. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 14 Secrets Joe was very busy in the garret, for the October days began to grow chilly and the afternoons were short. For two or three hours, the sun lay warmly in the high window, showing Joe seated on the old sofa, writing busily, with her papers spread out upon a trunk before her, while Scrabble, the pet rat, promenaded the beams overhead, accompanied by his oldest son, a fine young fellow who was evidently very proud of his whiskers. Quite absorbed in her work, Jo scribbled away till the last page was filled when she signed her name with a flourish and threw down her pen, saying, There, I've done my best. If this won't suit, I shall have to wait till I can do better. Lying back on the sofa, she read the manuscript carefully through, making dashes here and there, and putting in many exclamation points, which looked like little balloons. Then she tied it up with a smart red ribbon and sat a minute, looking at it with a sober, wistful expression which plainly showed how earnest her work had been. Joe's desk up here was an old tin kitchen which hung against the wall. In it, she kept her papers and a few books safely shut away from Scrabble, who, being likewise of a literary turn, was fond of making a circulating library of such books as were left in his way by eating the leaves. From this tin receptacle, Joe produced another manuscript and putting both in her pocket, crept quietly downstairs, leaving her friends to nibble on her pens and taste her ink. She put on her hat and jacket as noiselessly as possible and going to the back entry window, got out upon the roof of a low porch, swung herself down to the grassy bank and took a roundabout way to the road. Once there, she composed herself, hailed a passing omnibus and rolled away to town, looking very merry and mysterious. If anyone had been watching her, He would have thought her movements decidedly peculiar, for on alighting, she went off at a great pace till she realized a certain number in a certain busy street. Having found the place with some difficulty, she went into the doorway, looked up the dirty stairs, and after standing stock still a minute, suddenly dived into the street 
and walked away as rapidly as she came. This maneuver she repeated several times to the great amusement of a black-eyed young gentleman lounging in a window of a building opposite. On returning for the third time, Jo gave herself a shake, pulled her hat over her eyes and walked up the stairs, looking as if she were going to have all her teeth out. There was a dentist's sign, among others, which adorned the entrance, and after staring a moment at the pair of artificial jaws, which slowly opened and shut to draw attention to a fine set of teeth, the young gentleman put on his coat, took his hat, and went down to post himself in the opposite doorway, saying with a smile and a shiver, It's like her to come alone. If she has a bad time, she'll need someone to help her home. In ten minutes, Joe came running downstairs with a very red face and the general appearance of a person who had just passed through a trying ordeal of some sort. When she saw the young gentleman, she looked anything but pleased and passed him with a nod. But he followed, asking with an air of sympathy, Did you have a bad time? Not very. He got through quickly. Yes, thank goodness. Why did you go alone? Didn't want anyone to know? You're the oddest fellow I ever saw. How many did you have out? Joe looked at her friend as if she did not understand him, then began to laugh as if mightily amused at something. There are two which I want to have come out, but I must wait a week. What are you laughing at? You're up to some mischief, Joe, said Laurie, looking mystified. So are you. What were you doing, sir, up in that billiard saloon? Begging your pardon, ma'am, it wasn't a billiard saloon, but a gymnasium, and I was taking a lesson in fencing. I'm glad of that. Why? You can teach me, and then when we play Hamlet, you can be Laertes, and we'll make a fine thing of the fencing scene. Laurie burst out with a hearty boy's laugh, which made several passers-by smile in spite of themselves. I'll teach you whether we play Hamlet or not. It's grand fun, and we'll straighten you up capitally. But I don't believe that was your only reason for saying I'm glad in that decided way, was it now? No, I was glad that you were not in the saloon, because I hoped you never go to such places. Do you? Not often. I wish you wouldn't. It's no harm, Joe. I have billiards at home, but it's no fun unless you have good players. So, as I'm fond of it, I come sometimes and have a game with Ned Moffat or some of the other fellows. Oh dear, I'm so sorry. If you'll get to liking it better and better, more waste time and money, and grow like those dreadful boys. 
I did hope you'd stay respectable and be a satisfaction to your friends, said Joe, shaking her head. Can't a fellow take a little innocent amusement now and then without losing his respectability? Asked Laurie, looking nettled. That depends upon how and where he takes it. I don't like Ned and his set and wish you'd keep out of it. Mother won't let us have him at our house, though he wants to come. And if you grow like him, she won't be willing to have us frolic together as we do now. Won't she? Asked Laurie anxiously. No, she can't bear fashionable young men, and she'd shut us all up in bandboxes rather than have us associate with them. Well, she needn't get out of her bandboxes yet. I'm not a fashionable party. I don't mean to be. But I do like harmless larks now and then. Don't you? Yes, nobody minds them. So lark away. But don't get wild, will you? Or there'll be an end to all of our good times. I'll be a double distilled saint. I can't bear saints. Just be simple honest, a respectable boy, and we'll never desert you. I don't know what I should do if you acted like Mr. King's son. He had plenty of money, but didn't know how to spend it, and got tipsy and gambled and ran away, and forged his father's name, I believe, and it was altogether horrid. You think I'm likely to do the same? Much obliged. No, I don't. Oh dear, no. But I hear people talking about money being such a temptation. Sometimes I wish you were poor. I shouldn't worry then. Do you worry about me, Joe? A little, when you look moody and discontented as you sometimes do. You've got such a strong will. Once you get started wrong, I'm afraid it would be hard to stop you. Laurie walked in silence a few minutes, and Joe watched him, wishing she had held her tongue, for his eyes looked angry, though his lips smiled as if at her warnings. Are you going to deliver lectures all the way home? He asked presently. Of course not. Why? Because if you are, I'll take a bus. If you're not, I'd like to walk with you and tell you something very interesting. I won't preach anymore, and I'd like to hear the news immensely. Very well then, come on. It's a secret, and if I tell you, you must tell me yours. I haven't got any, began Joe, but stopped suddenly, remembering that she had. You know you have, you can't hide anything. So up and fess, or I won't tell, cried Laurie. Is your secret a nice one? Oh, isn't it? All about people you know and such fun. You ought to hear it. I've been aching to tell it this long time. Come, you begin. You'll not say anything about it at home, will you? Not a word. And you won't tease me in private. I never tease. Yes, you do. You get everything you want out of people. I don't know how you do it. You're a born wheedler. Thank you. Fire away. Well, 
I've left two stories with a newspaper man, and he's to give his answer next week, whispered Joe in her confidant's ear. Hurrah for Miss March, the celebrated American authoress, praised Laurie, throwing up his hat and catching it again, to the great delight of two ducks, four cats, five hens, and half a dozen children, for they were out of the city now. Hush, won't come to anything, I dare say, but I couldn't rest till I'd tried and I said nothing about it because I didn't want anyone else to be disappointed. It won't fail. Why, Joe, your stories are works of Shakespeare compared to half the rubbish that's published every day. Won't it be fun to see them in print? And shan't we feel proud of our authoress? Joe's eyes sparkled, for it's always pleasant to be believed in and a friend's praise is always sweeter than a dozen newspaper puffs. What's your secret? Play fair, Teddy, or I'll never believe you again, she said, trying to extinguish the brilliant hopes that blazed up at a word of encouragement. I may get into a scrape for telling, but I didn't promise not to, so I will for I never feel easy in my mind till I've told you any plummy bit of news I get. I know where Meg's glove is. Is that all? said Joe, looking disappointed as Laurie nodded and twinkled with a face full of mysterious intelligence. It's quite enough for the present, as you'll agree when I tell you where it is. Until then... Lori bent and whispered three words in Joe's ear, which produced a comical change. She stood and stared at him for a minute, looking both surprised and displeased, then walked on saying sharply, How do you know? Saw it. Where? Pocket. All this time? Yes. Isn't that romantic? No, it's horrid. Don't you like it? Of course I don't. It's ridiculous. It won't be allowed. My patience. What would Meg say? You're not to tell anyone. Mind that. I didn't promise. That was understood, and I trusted you. Well, I won't for the present anyway. But I'm disgusted. And wish you hadn't told me. I thought you'd be pleased. The idea of anybody coming to take Meg away. No thank you. You'll feel better about it someday when someone comes to take you away. I'd like to see anyone try it, said Joe fiercely. So should I, said Laurie, and chuckled at the idea. I don't think secrets agree with me feel rumpled up in my mind since you told me that, said Joe rather ungratefully. Race down this hill with me and you'll be all right, suggested Laurie. No one was in sight. The smooth road sloped invitingly before her and finding the temptation irresistible, Joe darted away, soon leaving hat and comb behind her 
and scattering hairpins as she ran. Laurie reached the goal first and was quite satisfied with the success of his treatment, for his Atlanta came panting up with flying hair, bright eyes, ruddy cheeks, and no signs of dissatisfaction in her face. I wish I was a horse. Then I could run for miles in this splendid air, not lose my breath. It was capital. See what a guy it's made me. Go pick up my things like a cherub as you are, said Joe, dropping down under a maple tree, which was carpeting the bank with crimson leaves. Laurie leisurely departed to recover the lost property, and Joe bundled up her brains, hoping no one would pass by till she was tidy again. But someone did pass, and who should it be but Meg, looking particularly ladylike in her state and festival suit, for she'd been making calls. What in the world are you doing here? she asked, regarding her disheveled sister with well-bred surprise. Getting leaves? Meekly answered Joe, sorting the rosy handful she had just swept up. And happens, added Laurie, throwing half a dozen into Joe's lap. They grow on this road, Meg. So do combs and brown straw hats. You've been running, Joe. How could you? When will you stop such romping ways? Said Meg reprovingly as she settled her cuffs and smoothed her hair, with which the wind had taken liberties. Never till I'm stiff and old and have to use a crutch. Don't try to make me grow up before my time, Meg. It's hard enough to have you change all of a sudden. Let me be a little girl as long as I can. As she spoke, Joe bent over the leaves to hide the trembling of her lips, for lately she had felt that Margaret was fast getting to be a woman, and Laurie's secret made her dread the separation which must surely come sometime, and now seemed very near. He saw the trouble in her face and drew Meg's attention from it by asking quickly, Where have you been calling? More so fine. At the gardener's, and Sally has been telling me all about Belle Moffat's wedding. It's very splendid, and they've gone to spend the winter in Paris. Just think how delightful that must be. Do you envy her, Meg? said Laurie. I'm afraid I do. Glad of it, muttered Joe, tying on her hat with a jerk. Why? asked Meg, looking surprised. Because if you care much about riches, you'll never go and marry a poor man, said Joe, frowning at Laurie, who was mutely warning her to mind what she said. I'll never go go and marry anyone, observed Meg, walking on with great dignity while the others followed, laughed, whispering, skipping stones, and behaving like children, as Meg said to herself, 
though she might have been tempted to join them if she did not have her best dress on. For a week or two, Jo behaved so strangely that her sisters were quite bewildered. She rushed to the door when the postman rang, was rude to Mr. Brooke whenever they met, would sit looking at Meg with a woebegone face, occasionally jumping up to shake, then kiss her in a very mysterious manner. Laurie and she were always making signs to one another and talking in low voices till the girls declared they had both lost their wits. On the second Saturday after Joe got out of the window, Meg, as she sat sewing at her window, was scandalized by the sight of Laurie chasing Joe all over the garden and finally capturing her in Amy's bower. What went on there Meg could not see, but shrieks of laughter were heard, followed by the murmur of voices and a great flapping of newspapers. What shall we do with that girl? She will never behave like a young lady, sighed Meg as she watched the race with a disapproving face. I hope she won't. She's so funny and dear as she is, said Beth, who had never betrayed that she was a little hurt at Joe's having secrets with anyone but her. It's very trying, but we can never make her, added Amy, who sat making some new frills for herself, with her curls tied up in a very becoming way. Two agreeable things made her feel unusually elegant and ladylike. In a few minutes, Jo bounced in, laid herself on the sofa, and affected to read. Have you anything interesting there? asked Meg with condescension. Nothing but a story. Won't amount to much, I guess, returned Jo carefully keeping the name of the paper out of sight. You'd better read it aloud. That will amuse us and keep you out of mischief, said Amy in her most grown-up tone. What's the name? asked Beth, wondering why Joe kept her face behind the sheet. The rival painters. That sounds well. Read it said Meg. With a hem and a long breath, Joe began to read very fast. The girls listened with interest, for the tale was romantic and somewhat pathetic, as most of the characters died in the end. I like that about the splendid picture, was Amy's approving remark as Joe paused. I prefer the lovering part. Viola and Angelo are two of my favorite names. Isn't that curious? Said Meg, wiping her eyes, for the lovering part was tragical. Who wrote it? Asked Beth, who had caught a glimpse of Joe's face. The reader suddenly sat up, cast away the paper, 
displaying a flushed countenance and with a funny mixture of solemnity and excitement, replied in a loud voice, Your sister. You, cried Meg, dropping her work. It's very good, said Amy critically. I knew it. I knew it. Oh my Joe, I'm so proud. And Beth ran to hug her sister and exult over this splendid success. Dear me, how delighted they all were to be sure. How Meg wouldn't believe it till she saw the words Miss Josephine March actually printed in the paper. How graciously Amy criticized the artistic parts of the story and offered hints for a sequel, which unfortunately couldn't be carried out as the hero and heroine were dead. How Beth got excited and skipped and sang with joy. How Hannah came in to say, Snakes alive! Well, I never! In great astonishment, and that Joe's doings. How proud Mrs. March was when she knew it. How Joe laughed with tears in her eyes as she declared she might as well be a peacock and done with it, and how the bird might be said to flap his wings triumphantly over the house of March as the paper passed from hand to hand. Tell us about it. When did it come? How much did you get for it? What will father say? Won't Laurie laugh? Asked the family, all in one breath, as they clustered about Joe for these foolish, affectionate people made a jubilee of every little household joy. Stop jabbering, girls, and I'll tell you everything said Joe, wondering if Miss Burnley felt any grander over her Evelina than she did over her rival painters. Having told how she disposed of her tales, Joe added, And when I went to get my answer, the man said he liked them both, but didn't pay beginners, only let them print in his paper, and noticed the stories. It was good practice, he said, and when the beginners improved, anyone would pay. So I let him have the two stories, and today this was sent to me, and Laurie caught me with it and insisted on seeing it, so I let him, and he said it was good, and I shall write more, and he's going to get the next paid for, and I'm so happy, for in time I may be able to support myself and to help the girls. Joan's breath gave out here, and wrapping her head in the paper, she bedewed her little story with a few natural tears. For to be independent and earn the praise of those she loved were the dearest wishes of her heart, and this seemed to be the first step towards that happy end. Chapter 15. A Telegram November is the most disagreeable month in the whole year, 
said Margaret, standing at the window one dull afternoon, looking out at the frost-bitten garden. That's the reason I was born in it, observed Joe pensively, quite unconscious of the blot on her nose. If something very pleasant should happen now, we should think it a delightful month, said Beth who took a hopeful view of everything, even November. I dare say, nothing pleasant ever does happen in this family, said Meg, who was out of sorts. We go grubbing all day, day after day, without a bit of change and very little fun. We might as well be in a treadmill. My patience, how blue we are said Joe. I don't much wonder, poor dear, if you see other girls having splendid times while you grind, grind, year in and year out. Oh, I don't wish I could manage things for you as I do my heroines. You're pretty enough and good enough already, so I'd have some rich relation leave you a fortune unexpectedly. Then you'd dash out as an heiress scorn everyone who has slighted you, go abroad, and come home my lady something in a blaze of splendor and elegance. People don't have fortunes left them in that style nowadays. Men have to work, and women marry for money. It's a dreadfully unjust world, said Meg bitterly. Joe and I are going to make fortunes for you all, Just wait ten years and see if we don't, said Amy, who sat in a corner making mud pies, as Hannah called her little clay models of birds, fruit, and faces. Can't wait. I'm afraid I haven't much faith in ink and dirt. I'm grateful for your good intentions, Meg sighed and turned to the frostbitten garden again. Joe groaned and leaned both elbows on the table in a despondent attitude, but Amy spatted away energetically, and Beth, who sat at the other window, said, smiling, Two pleasant things are going to happen right away. Mommy is coming down the street, and Laurie is tramping through the garden as if he had something nice to tell. In they both came, Mrs. March with her usual question, Any letter from father, girls? And Laurie to say in his persuasive way, Won't some of you come for a drive? I've been working away at mathematics till my head is a muddle. I'm going to freshen my wits by a brisk turn. It's a dull day, but the air isn't bad. I'm going to take Brooke home, so will be nice inside if it isn't out. Come, Joe, you and Beth will go, won't you? Of course we will. Much obliged, but I'm busy. And Meg whisked out her work basket, for she had agreed with her mother that it was best, for her at least, not to drive too often with the young gentleman. We three will be ready in a minute, said Amy running away to wash her hands. 
Can I do anything for you, Madam Mother? Asked Laurie, leaning over Mrs. March's chair with the affectionate look and tone he always gave her. No, thank you. Except call at the office if you'll be so kind, dear. It's our day for a letter, and the postman hasn't been. Father is as regular as the sun. There's some delay on the way, perhaps. A sharp ring interrupted her, and a minute after Hannah came in with a letter. It's one of those horrid telegraph things, Mum, she said, handling it as if she were afraid it would explode and do some damage. At the word telegraph, Mrs. March snatched it, read the two lines it contained, and dropped back into her chair as white as if the little paper had sent a bullet to her heart. Laurie dashed downstairs for water, while Meg and Hannah supported her, and Joe read aloud in a frightened voice. Mrs. March, your husband is very ill. Come at once. S. Hale, Blank Hospital, Washington. How still the room was as they listened breathlessly. How strangely the day darkened outside, and how suddenly the whole world seemed to change as the girls gathered about their mother, feeling as if all the happiness and support of their lives was about to be taken from them. Mrs. March was herself again directly, read the message over, and stretched out her arms to her daughters, saying in a tone they never forgot, I shall go at once, but it may be too late. Children, children, help me bear it. For several minutes, there was nothing but the sound of sobbing in the room, mingled with broken words of comfort, tender assurances of help, and hopeful whispers that died away in tears. Poor Hannah was the first to recover, and with unconscious wisdom, she set all the rest a good example, for with her, work was panacea for most afflictions. The Lord keep the dear man. Don't waste time a-crying, but get your things ready away, Mum, she said heartily as she wiped her face on her apron gave her mistress a warm shake of the hand with her own hard one and went away to work like three women in one. She's right. There's no time for tears now. Be calm, girls. Let me think. They tried to be calm, poor things, as their mother sat up, looking pale but steady, and put away her grief to think and plan for them. Where's Laurie? She asked presently when she had collected her thoughts and decided on the first duties to be done. Here, Mum, let me do something, said the boy, hurrying from the next room whither he had withdrawn, feeling that their first sorrow was too sacred for even his friendly eyes to see. Send a telegram, saying I will come at once. The next train goes early in the morning. I'll take that. What else? The horses are ready, 
I can go anywhere, do anything, he said, looking ready to fly to the ends of the earth. Leave a note at Aunt March's. Joe, give me that pen and paper. Tearing off the blank side of one of her newly copied pages, Joe drew the table before her mother, well knowing that money for the long, sad journey must be borrowed and feeling as if she could do anything to add a little to the sum for her father. Now go, dear, but don't kill yourself driving at a desperate pace. There's no need for that. Mrs. March's warning was evidently thrown away, for five minutes later, Laurie tore by the window on his own fleet horse, riding as if for his life. Joe ran to the rooms and tell Mrs. King that I can't come. On the way, get these things, and I'll put them down. They'll be needed and I must go to prepared for nursing. Hospital stores are not always good. Beth, go and ask Mr. Lawrence for a couple of bottles of old wine. Not too proud to beg for father. He shall have the best of everything. Amy, tell Hannah to get down the black trunk. And Meg, come and help me find my things, for I'm half bewildered. Writing, thinking, and directing all at once might well bewilder the poor lady. And Meg begged her to sit quietly in her room for a little while and let them work. Everyone scattered like leaves before a gust of wind, and the quiet, happy household was broken up as suddenly as if the paper had been an evil spell. Mr. Lawrence came hurrying back with Beth, bringing every comfort the kind old gentleman could think of for the invalid and friendliest promises of protection for the girls during their mother's absence, which comforted her very much. There was nothing he didn't offer, from his own dressing gown to himself as escort, but the last was impossible. Mrs. March would not hear of the old gentleman's undertaking the long journey, yet an expression of relief was visible when he spoke of it for anxiety ill fits one for traveling. He saw the look, knit his heavy eyebrows, rubbed his hands, and marched abruptly away, saying he'd be back directly. No one had time to think of him again, till as Meg ran through the entry with a pair of rubber boots in one hand and a cup of tea in the other, she came suddenly upon Mr. Brooke, I'm very sorry to hear of this, Miss March, he said, in the kind of quiet tone which sounded very pleasant to her perturbed spirit. I came to offer myself as escort to your mother. Mr. Lawrence has commissions for me in Washington, and it will give me real satisfaction to be of service to her there. Down dropped the rubber boots, and the team was very near following as Meg put out her hand with a face so full of gratitude that Mr. Brooke would have felt repaid for a much greater sacrifice than the trifling, worn of time and comfort which he was about to take. How kind you all are. Mother will accept, I'm sure, 
and it will be such a relief to know that she has someone to take care of her. Thank you very, very much. Meg spoke earnestly and forgot herself entirely till something in the brown eyes looking down at her made her remember the cooling tea and led the way to the parlour, saying she would call her mother. Everything was arranged by the time Laurie returned with a note from Aunt March enclosing the desired sum and a few lines repeating what she had often said before, that she had always told them it was absurd for March to go into the army, always predicted that no good would come of it, and she hoped they would take her advice next time. Mrs. March put the note on the fire, the money in her purse, and went on with her preparations, with her lips folded tightly, in a way which Joe would have understood if she had been there. The short afternoon wore away. All other errands were done, and Meg and her mother, busy at some necessary needlework, while Beth and Amy got tea, and Hannah finished her ironing with what she called a slap and a bang. But still, Joe did not come. They began to get anxious, and Dory went off to find her, for no one knew what freak Joe might take into her head. He missed her, however, and she came walking in with a very strange expression of countenance, for there was a mixture of fun and fear, satisfaction and regret in it, which puzzled the family as much as did the roll of bills she laid before her mother saying with a little choke in her voice, that's my contribution toward making father comfortable and bringing him home. My dear, where did you get it? Twenty-five dollars, Joe. I hope you haven't done anything rash. No, it's mine, honestly. I didn't beg, borrow, or steal it. I earned it. I don't think you'll blame me for I only sold what was my own. And as she spoke, Joe took off her bonnet and a general outcry arose, for all her abundant hair was cut short. Your hair, your beautiful hair. Oh, Joe, how could you? Your one beauty. My dear girl, there was no need of this. She doesn't look like my Joe anymore, but I love her dearly for it. As everyone exclaimed and Beth hugged the cropped head tenderly, Joe assumed an indifferent air which did not deceive anyone a particle and said, rumpling up the brown bush and trying to look as if she liked it. Doesn't affect the fate of the nation, so don't wail, Beth. It'll be good for my vanity. I was getting too proud of my wig. It will do my brains good to get that mop taken off. My head feels deliciously light and cool, and the barber said I could have a curly crop, which would be boyish, becoming, and easy to keep in order. I'm satisfied. So please, take the money and let's have supper.